This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.
I've found my hiding place. Oh, thank you for my storms. Lord, you are my hiding place. powerful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Oh, we don't like to thank you for our storm, but God, it's in those times when we look for you and we find you. Thank you for Brandon and his life. And Lord, as we get ready to open your word, just speak. Speak as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. It was Sunday morning, and a young man named Harry pulled out of his driveway, headed to church in his two-seater convertible. It was one of those gloomy and rainy days, and so before pulling out of the garage, Harry made sure that the roof in his convertible was completely closed. As he turned onto the main road, he saw ahead of him three bedraggled figures trying to stay dry, huddled under a single umbrella. As he got closer, he recognized all of them. In fact, they were all from his church. One was old Mrs. Fletcher. She was quite the feisty, spunky, independent, but yet sweet, sweet lady. And she still insisted on walking the few blocks to church by herself, despite her 87 years of living, not to mention her arthritis, which, of course, always acted up in wet weather. Also huddled under the umbrella was Dr. Jones. Now, Dr. Jones happened to be Harry's physician and was a fitness nut, thought that he could get in his run and make it to church before the rain hit. Sadly mistaken. Harry had high respect for Dr. Jones because a year earlier, he had diagnosed a rare disease that Harry had contracted on an overseas trip. Harry virtually owed him his life. The third person under the umbrella was Judith. Harry had had a crush on her for the past six months ever since she had joined the church, but Harry had never gotten up the courage to talk to her and ask her out what to do, what to do. Harry had three seconds to decide. There was only room for one in his two-seat convertible. Who should he offer to give a ride to? Well, oh, Mrs. Fletcher, who was somewhat decrepit, was probably the most physically needy out of the three. But here was also a chance to return a small favor to Dr. Jones, to whom he felt a great sense of gratitude. But then his mind and his eyes went to Judith. This would be the perfect opportunity to do her a favor and give her that ride that might possibly jumpstart them into a relationship. Well, those three seconds were enough. For Harry to process this decision, he moved his foot off of the accelerator, onto the brakes, pulled over, jumped out of his car into the rain. And in one quick motion, he handed his car keys to Dr. Jones, and then gently took old Mrs. Fletcher's arm and helped her get into the passenger seat. He then waved goodbye to them and ran over and ducked under the umbrella that Judith was holding and huddled close to her. In the three-second decision... 
Harry had shown respect to old Mrs. Fletcher. He had shown appreciation to Dr. Jones and put himself in a position to be alone with Judith. Now, in the story that I told, as well as the story that will anchor our lesson this morning, we're going to see that when it comes to matters of romance, divine providence, aided by a bit of good old-fashioned common sense, often work as teammates in bringing two people together. Now, before we get into our lesson, let me just explain something. Last week, we studied Ruth chapter 2 in what I thought was going to be a standalone message. But I was so intrigued last week after speaking that I, I, I went to uh, Ruth chapter 3 just for my personal curiosity, revisited the account. Well, after that, even though I had no intentions of doing this last week, I did feel led to continue studying this love story in the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth chapter 3, let me just kind of tell you this, put it on the table early on, is going to bring out some really strange and bizarre practices that I don't recommend that you try, okay? Kids do not try this at home, and don't try it anywhere else either. But as bizarre and strange as these practices will, will seem to us, understand that these bizarre practices were appropriate behavior. They were accepted behavior back about 3,000, about 3,300 years ago when the story really took place. And to just kind of give you the bottom line summary, this account will illustrate that even though God's providence is always at work many times, you know, we don't recognize it, yet God is always at work. You know, for example, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how many years took place? Pop quiz, 400. Uh, and they're called the 400 years of silence. And they're called the 400 years of silence because there's no record of God speaking to the Jewish people during those 400 years. But, but God was still at work. God is always at work. But having said that, and recognizing the ever-present concept of what theologians call uh, call God's divine providence, don't ever forget that that doesn't take away for the need for us at times to show some good old common sense in life. And we will see that that is even good advice in a love story that we will cover today. In fact, just a personal note here, when I look back at how God brought Faith and I together, I, I see divine providence, but then without bragging, I see a little bit of good old common sense on my part. You know, the divine providence was that Faith and her boyfriend decided to break up. And, and, and I've told you before many times that I don't know what she saw in him. I mean, he was a loser. And I know last week I said there are no losers, but he was really, really close to one. But I believe that God and his divine providence broke them up. But then the common sense came into play when I put some moves on her. And you don't need to know the details. They were pure moves, but not necessarily inspired by God. But the two together... Divine providence, common sense on my part, brought us together. And what do they say? The rest is history. And, and in our lesson today, we will see how God's providence, coupled with some good old common sense, propelled Ruth into a relationship with Boaz that changed their lives forever. Now, a quick review, because some of you weren't here last week, Labor Day weekend, but in Ruth chapter 1, we learned that there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And let me just show you a map here again. Of course, right here is Bethlehem. And at that time, scholars say probably about 200 residents strong. 
I was out at uh, Shell City yesterday at that uh, fall festival, and I think their city limits sign, uh, the sign said 259. So just kind of picture Shell City. And then here's Moab, probably as the crow flies, it would be about a 50-mile walk. And um, Moab, just remember, was a very wicked place. In fact, we, we brought out the scripture where God said, Moab is my wash pot. And I said, just picture in your mind a wash pot that maybe where you had washed dirty dishes and, and you've got food junk floating around. And, and God said that about Moab. In fact, he also went on and said that they were not to associate with the Moabites for 10 generations. 10 generations. Well, Elimelech, uh, to try to escape the famine, took his wife Naomi, two sons, into the pagan land of Moab, disobeyed God's commands. And... Uh, Shortly after arriving in Moab, tragedy strikes, Elimelech dies, both boys end up marrying unbelievers, pagan people. To top things off, ten years after their marriage, both boys die. And we ended our study in Ruth chapter 1 when Naomi decided to return back home to Bethlehem. She kissed her daughters-in-law goodbye, one of them named Orpah. Uh, Remember what Orpah means from last week? Back of your neck. That's what Orpah means. Embraced Naomi, went back to her people, to her God. She was never heard from again. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, remember what it means? Friend. For whom this book is named after, made that classic statement of where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people be my people. Your God, my God, etc., etc. Well, in Ruth chapter 2, we followed Naomi and Ruth into Bethlehem. And to be able to put food on the table, still a review here. Ruth decided to gather grain, but remember, just happened to go to Boaz's field, and, and uh, we said it looked like luck, it looked like coincidence, but it was God and his providence bringing her to Boaz, a, a relative of her late father-in-law, and there, of course, she had an encounter with Boaz, who incidentally represents Jesus Christ. But even though that encounter was God's providence, yet Ruth had to do her part. And so comparing this to our opening story, we're about ready to jump into our lesson. God put Boaz on the corner in the rain. Ruth had to find a way to get herself under his umbrella. And we will see how that happens today. Ruth chapter 3 verse 1. One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours and He's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his workers. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, Naomi essentially goes to Ruth and says, Ruth, it's time for you to get on with your life. You've been good to me. You've left your people to take care of me. And I don't know what I would have done without you, but I'm going to release you and give you opportunity so that you can find someone to love and someone that will love you. And here's what I want you to do. You've been working in the field with Boaz. He happens to be a close relative of ours. He's been good to you over the past few weeks. He's been generous. He's given you more grain than what his own workers have even gotten. And tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, when the Bible refers to the threshing floor, here's what you need to think of. You need to think of, uh, let's go to the next slide here. You need to think of this circular pit that's made out of clay, that's hard, and um, 
the threshing floor would typically be located at the top of a hill so that it could catch a little bit of the wind. But what would take place here at the threshing floor is that sheaves of grain would be brought in and, and spread around on, on the floor uh, of that threshing floor. And uh, they would bring in the oxen that would be pulling some kind of sled with hard edges, maybe some teeth. They would drag that across the grain, which would break the outer hull off the grain. The, the resulting mixture would be winnowed. In other words, thrown into the air with a pitchfork during a light wind. Uh, after doing this dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, the outside husks that were lighter would float away while the grain kernels would fall back to the ground, back in the pit. Now, this had to be done with the right amount of wind present. Um, because if the wind were too strong, the grain would fly away with the husks. They would lose the good stuff. If, if the wind were too light, nothing would separate. It'd all just fall back down to the threshing floor. And when Naomi seems to have inside information that Boaz would be at the threshing floor, she's probably checked the wind conditions, determined that more than likely the wind would be ideal for separating the husks from the grain, which means that Boaz would be at the threshing floor. Let's keep on reading. Verse 3. Now, do as I tell you. Catch these instructions. Take a bath. Put on perfume. Dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished his meal. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet. Lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, now this verse has a natural three-point outline. Naomi said, take a bath, so we could call this point, clean up. She said, put on perfume, which we could call this point, smell up. And then Naomi said, put on your nicest clothes, which would be dress up. You guys are getting it. <laughs> Let's quickly look at these three pieces of instruction that Naomi gives Ruth. She says, first of all, take a bath. Now, I learned early on that it's not a good thing to go on a date until you've cleaned up. Ruth would have probably worked in the fields all day, probably was sweaty, maybe smelly. Her deodorant had possibly quit working. And, and by the way, have you ever wondered, and I'm sure you haven't, because you're far, far too normal for this kind of questioning in your mind, but have you ever wondered if people that lived centuries ago, and this would have been about three millennia ago, you know, 3,300 years, did they use any type of deodorant back then? Has anybody ever wondered that? That's what I thought. Okay, one person. Man, I feel so good. There's someone that I'm on the same wavelength with here, but many of them didn't. But I did read where the ancient Egyptians, which would actually be before this time period of Ruth, they did try to mask their body odors somewhat, and they used several different things. They used carob from, you know, the carob bean, which today is sometimes used as a substitute for chocolate. And, you know, if it smells like chocolate, that's, I'm interested. Uh, <laughs> But they also used incense and porridge that they would smear on their bodies. But the other thing I learned, this was to me the most fascinating, Egyptian women would sometimes pour gobs of scented wax on their heads. And in the heat of the day, during the heat of the day, that wax would slowly melt down over their bodies, spreading the 
pleasing scent as well as masking the not so pleasant. So ladies and gentlemen, there you have some worthless information that just comes as a bonus to the lesson. But, but Ruth taking a bath was a good move. Second thing she did was put on perfume. Another good idea, as long as it's in moderation. Ladies, not that you care for our opinion, but from a male's perspective, a little perfume is good, a lot is bad. If it chokes us up, if you come and we start coughing, it's too much, but a little is good. Again, just some bonus information that you're not charged for. Well, then the Bible also says that Ruth dressed up in her best clothes, and I really need you to listen on this point. Being dressed in her best clothes in that culture would mean that she was very well covered, probably from head to toe, maybe with a head covering. She was in no way dressing seductively. Today, when ladies dress up, whether it's for a wedding or a prom or a banquet or some other formal occasion, the cultural norm is that the dressier the event, the skimpier the outfit. And you may just say, Joe, you are so old, of which I reject that accusation. But anyway, dress-up clothes today, today uh, seem to lend themselves towards skimpiness. Is that a word, skimpiness? You know what I mean? And, and you would think that dressy outfits wouldn't cost very much because there's not much material in them. That's not what I hear. But, but you need to know that when Ruth put on her very best outfit, it was a modest outfit with probably only her face showing. Well... Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor to watch where Boaz goes to lie down. Now, typically men would sleep with their grain. They would put their heads towards the grain. Their feet would stick out like spokes. And they slept that way to protect the grain, uh, protect from thieves that might come in and try to steal some grain. Well, when Boaz falls asleep, Ruth is to lie down, uncover his feet. Now, that sounds really weird to us, doesn't it? So let's talk about this. Being in a sex-driven society, Americans have come to read sex into everything. Beer commercials, soda commercials, new car commercials, clothing commercials, you name it. Commercials are designed to appeal to sexual desires. And so some people have, have taken this act of uncovering Boaz's feet to be a, Harley, a highly charged sexual come on. They say, Ruth was uncovering more than a pair of feet. But I actually did some research into this Old Testament practice, and, and, and I looked up the word for feet that's used in, in this verse here in the original Hebrew language, and I learned that this word is found only one other time in the entire Bible. It's found in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, and, and do you know what it refers to in Daniel 10, 6? Feet. And in fact, literally, the reference is at the foot. That there's no way that the Hebrew word can be taken to mean anything else except for feet. And so when the text says feet, do you know what it means? Feet. Ruth uncovered the feet of Boaz, not the knees, not the midsection. Ruth uncovered his feet. 
And yes, we will find that this act of uncovering Boaz's feet had romantic overtures, but be careful reading into the story some distorted soap opera encounter where Ruth put on her best perfume and went in a slinky outfit and uncovered Boaz, and one thing led to another to another and ended up like a typical Hollywood movie where two people are overcome with their passions. That's not what happened. So, what does it really signify What does this signify when Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet? Well, this was a cultural practice in that day. And again, I don't recommend that you try this at home, especially some other place. And putting it bluntly, Ruth was showing her desire to marry Boaz. But it also stemmed from the cultural practice that that when a man died, leaving no children, then the nearest relative would have that option of marrying the survivor, helping carry on the family, family name. So so this practice, even though it did have romantic overtones, it was also to help preserve the family income, or uh, family name, I'm sorry, the family name for Naomi. Now, can you imagine how nervous Ruth must have been? You know, she was a foreigner, remember? This was new to her. More than likely, the Moabite people didn't have this custom. So I'm sure her mind was flooded with, What if? What if? What if she were rejected? What if Boaz would say, you foreigner, you so-and-so, get out of here. Or what if Boaz would think that she was a Moabitess prostitute and needed some money? Or what if? Boaz ended up not being the noble man she thought he was and ended up taking advantage of her. What if? What if? But even with the questions, she fully obeyed Naomi's instructions. And so when Boaz had finished his meal and was in good spirits, and and let me talk about this as well. Don't read into verse 7 that Boaz got drunk. Let me read the verse. It says, After Boaz had finished his meal and was in good spirits, he lay down beside the heap of grain and went to sleep. Now, any, any time in our society when it reads about someone eating and drinking and being in good spirits, they think, well, he had a few too many. He's feeling good. And then others would say, well, Ruth was kind of ruthless because, pardon the pun, because she was trying to take advantage of a rich man who had had one too many. Well, I, I studied this extensively because I, I had to resolve this in my mind and and none of the commentators felt this scripture was indicating that Boaz was a little bit tipsy because he had too many drinks and and again I can't speak with 100% certainty but but I'm confident that Boaz was sober for a couple of reasons first of all when people in the Bible had too much to drink you know how the Bible describes them the Bible says they were drunk drunk um Today we call being under the influence a lot of different things. In fact, uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and I, I looked this up, it has 103 synonyms for the word drunk. Some of them are impaired, inebriated, intoxicated. Others, on the lighter side, you know, whenever we kind of want to make a joke, we, we say, well, he was blasted or blitzed or fried or smashed or looped or sloshed, or tanked, well-oiled, loaded, wasted, soused, 
But in the Bible, 26 different times, it refers to people drinking too much, and the Bible calls them drunk. The Bible says that Noah got drunk. The Bible says Lot got drunk. The Bible says that Nadab and Abihu, they violated principles of worship, and they're the ones that brought strange fire to the altar, and, and because they got drunk. But the Bible doesn't say that Boaz got drunk. And the second reason I don't believe Boaz was, was drunk is because Boaz is a portrait of Christ, and, and I just don't think that you would see Jesus Christ getting a little bit tipsy because of drinking too much. Well, let's continue on. Boaz went to sleep. He had worked hard all day. He probably just kind of crashed, went into a deep sleep. Ruth quietly approaches him. Try to imagine this. Uncovers his feet. Um, lays down. And the customary position here was to lay at the feet perpendicular at a 90 degree angle to, to, to Boaz. And again, people have tried to read into this text that Ruth snuggled up to Boaz. It says nothing of the sort. She uncovers his feet, lays at his feet, waits for him to wake up. Can you imagine how her heart was pounding? Well, in the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up, turns over, and to his shock, he discovers a woman at his feet. Now, this was a major surprise to him. In fact, the Targum, and the, the, the Targum is an Aramaic paraphrase that was written kind of in the, the first century. Evidently, the Hebrew language was kind of dying at that time, and, and so there was a paraphrase in Aramaic, and, and it says that when Boaz discovered this woman at his feet, and this is a quote from the Targum, the man trembled and his flesh became like a boiled turnip. I don't know what that necessarily looks like. Boiled turnip. The, the woman at his feet shocked him, scared him, and immediately Boaz demands to know who it is. Well, R Ruth responds in verse 9, I'm your servant, Ruth. She replied, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Now, that, that, that phrase to spread the corner, uh, corner of your garment over me is a Hebrew phrase that does not in any way indicate any, can I just say it, hanky-panky? If you know what I mean? You know, the thought behind this phrase is that when one covers the woman, it shows purity between the two, while to uncover would indicate adultery. The, the Hebrew text goes to great lengths to show that R Ruth and Boaz are honorable people. And so this right here is a simple proposal for marriage. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. So there you have it, ladies. You have biblical backing to propose to your man. If you're tired of waiting for that bum, go for it. Ask him out on a date. If he's the right one, ask him to marry you and quote Ruth chapter 3 verse 9 and tell him you're just following the instructions of the Bible. Let me know how that works out for you. But So she says, Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me. And then, then she says, for you're my kinsman redeemer. Now, now, kinsman redeemer was a close relative who would be in a place to marry the widow of a relative and then produce an heir in the name of the deceased man. And, and of course, this would not only benefit Ruth, but it would, 
especially benefit Naomi and would make sure that the family name lived on. How does Boaz respond? Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. You're showing more family loyalty now than ever. I just kind of chuckled at this. By not running after a younger man, whether rich or poor. So, so far from being offended, Boaz is pleased. And I had to say, I like this guy, Boaz. I mean, he's smooth. He's suave. And he's been awakened in the middle of the night. It, it scared him so much that his flesh became like a boiled turnip. But he calms down. And when he finds out who it is, he says, the Lord bless you, Ruth. And then he basically says, Ruth, I can't, I can't believe you chose me. You, you could have had anyone even the younger men and, and richer men, but you chose me. And, and, and we don't know for sure, but Jewish tradition, listen to this, Jewish tradition put Boaz at around 80 years of age and Ruth at 40. But don't you know that Ruth breathed a sigh of relief? And I, I don't know, guys, maybe whenever you proposed to your wife, you knew it was going to be a yes, but I didn't know for sure. <laughs> But whenever my wife said, uh, my wife-to-be said yes, it was like, and I can just imagine Ruth going, yes, thank you, Jesus. Well, Boaz, after the initial shock and after being so pleased that she would choose him, an older man, he says, you know, Ruth, you're an amazing woman. You, in fact, the whole town knows that you're an honorable woman. And, and remember, she was a Moabitess. God called them a wash pot. Another translation says lowly servant. But that's a pretty good reputation for this foreign Moabitess woman. But, but then as Boaz thinks through this a little bit, he, the smile goes off of his face. And, um, and he says, Ruth, I'm sorry to throw cold water on this special moment. But there's one little teeny tiny problem. And that's that there's a relative that's closer to Naomi than I am. And, and that means that I, I'm not really the first in line to redeem you. And the law said that the closest relative had to have first opportunity. And if they declined, they could move on to the next relative. Boaz would have been the second in line. And, and so Boaz says, we may have a problem, Houston, but... Let me see what I can do. And, and then in verse 13, he says, you know, stay here tonight, get some rest. We'll deal with this in the morning. And now, here's the big question. What happened the rest of the night? Did they sleep together? Did they cohabitate? Verse 14 answers that. We know the answer to that question. It says, so Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. You know, those who try to make this into something it's not, they need to read that little detail. She stayed at his feet until morning. Well, before the sun comes up, Boaz loads Ruth up with six scoops of barley, sends her back to Naomi before other people see her and start the gossip chain. Remember a community of around Shell City size, 200 and some people maybe. Ruth arrives home excitedly tells Naomi all that's transpired in the last 10, 12 hours. And, and Ruth chapter 3 ends with Naomi saying, okay, we've done all we can do. Let's be patient. Boaz is not a procrastinator. He will settle this today. So what happens? 
do you want to know the rest of the story? You want to know the rest of the story? It's such a great account. Sorry, you're going to have to come back next week. <laughs> Seriously. Because Ruth chapter 4, we're getting to the crux. We're getting to the climax. We're getting to the amazing part of the story. It's been boring so far. Ruth chapter 4 is going to be amazing. But sorry, that's going to be next week. But I want to wrap things up. And uh, I, I thought of some lessons that we should probably take home with us from chapter 3. Number one, early in this lesson, I mentioned this, but don't ever forget that God is always at work, even when we don't understand it. God is at work when 9-11 takes place, when terrorists come, turn commercial airlines into missiles and take out thousands of people. God is at work. God is at work when, when we have that little hiccup in our walk with Him. You know, we sin, we, we slip and mess up. God is at work. God is at work even when He appears to be silent. And if you're like me, I go through those times where it's like, God, where are you? God, where are you? I'm here, but where are you? God is at work. If things seem dark in your life, your family's not going well, your kids are going astray, God is at work. If you lose a relative, God is at work. You know, Carrie Bland, um, she's part of our church. She lost her dear daddy, Pastor Tucker. He served as a minister for many years. He, he went to heaven yesterday morning. But, you know, uh, Pastor Tucker was amazing because he focused so much on just memorizing the Word of God. And it's said that he memorized the New Testament, the entire New Testament. Kind of puts me to shame. But during this time when, you know, Carrie is mourning the loss of her dear daddy. God is at work. Here's the second point. This is kind of non-traditional, but there comes a point, parents, when you need to release your children. You, you can do what you can. You can try to hold on to them, but sometimes you do more good than, or more harm than good by just hanging on to them. And Naomi came to that point. She said, Ruth, you've been such a big help to me. And I thank God for you, but it's time for me to release you. And so parents, there will be a time when you have to say, children, I release you. Here's the third point, and I think it's really clear. The Bible talks about this. God's plan for sexual relations is to be only within the context of marriage, even if no one else would find out. Here's number four, and this is kind of non-traditional as well, but God is pleased with proper ethical behavior because Boaz followed proper ethics and made sure that the closest relative had first chance at Ruth. Now, I want to just say that matters of ethics don't always follow written rules and laws. You can sometimes follow every law, yet be very unethical. And many people lose their witness, not because they break a law, but because they do things that are just unethical. 
And I pray that God will help us as Christians to be people of impeccable, impeccable ethics. Here's number five. I think we've already beat this dead horse, but I'll mention it again. Wisdom and good old common sense on our part many times can minimize our problems. You know, sometimes common sense regarding issues of what we say, sometimes just we need to just keep our mouth shut. Common sense regarding what we do, how we dress, how we act. Some good and godly people don't have a clue. And they get in trouble because they don't have common sense. May God give us some, my dad used to say, common horse sense. Number six, do what you can and then be patient. There comes a time when we can do all we can. We can push, we can pull, we can shove. But then we have to just leave the rest up to God. Just like you will have to wait patiently to hear the rest of this story next week. Lord, thank you for this amazing account. God, I thank you that you put this love story in here. Four chapters just kind of inserted there in the Old Testament. That's hard to find sometimes this book, but wow. How powerful this book is. Lord, uh, we're going to find out that just as Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, Father, we're going to find out that, Jesus, you're our kinsman redeemer. You redeem us from a life of sin. Lord, from a messed up world, you redeem us. And one day, Lord, we're going to be recipients of that complete redemption where we're going to be taken away. And, but right now, Father, while we're here, I pray that we would make sure that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and that we are continually coming before him. So God, I pray a blessing upon our people today. As they go out from here, Lord, I ask that you would make them witnesses for Jesus. I pray that They would show kindness. I pray that they would show compassion. I pray that they would show patience. I pray that they would show long-suffering, that they would be long-suffering. Father, I pray that they would somehow, someway, let people know that Christians are good people. Lord, let us be full of ethics, high character. And God, I just pray that uh, our lives would point to Jesus. Thank you again for allowing us to meet here. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all of God's wonderful people said, Amen. You're dismissed. We will see you Wednesday evening. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.